I'm Adam Rappaport. Welcome back to the Bon Appetit Foodcast. Joining us in studio today is Senior Food Policy Analyst for NBC and MIT Media Lab Fellow and the former Executive Director of Let's Move and first ever Senior Policy Advisor for Nutrition Policy and former personal chef to the Obamas and a hell of a college baseball player. Ladies and gentlemen, Sam Cass. <laughs> that is one intro. Thank you. It's I, so I, great to be here. Belle Cushing, our, our awesome producer here. I'm like, can I? Can we edit this down a little, Belle? She's just like, <laughs> no, you can't. I love this part. The first question and the sort of basic talking points, talk about how Sam went from on the way to being a pro baseball player to cook in Chicago. Let's talk about pro baseball here, Sam. How how close were you to being in the big leagues? Oh, I think I think close to being a pro is maybe a little a stretch, but I'm I'm very grateful for that. Uh, I was trying to become a pro baseball player. I was playing junior college baseball, trying to get drafted. My whole dream was to be a major league player. What's interesting is that I never sort of decided that I wanted to become a chef. Um, I transferred to Chicago, and it, while I was there, I got into this restaurant. My, my friend was a sous chef at this restaurant in Chicago, in an Italian-American kind of spot. And I, I always loved food, but didn't want to be a chef. But the, my friend invited me in to come hang out, and I went and loved it. And so I ended up just showing up and helping out and scrubbing potatoes and things like that. And so they ended up hiring me. You had not cooked in restaurants as a kid or anything, a no, teenager? No, no, not at all. Not nothing. at all. We had very normal food. I have no like Italian grandma gnocchi <laughs> stories to tell, unfortunately. But I just loved it. And I spent a few months cooking in this restaurant. But like I came out not knowing anything, except for that I loved it. But still had no idea. What, what did you love about it? Um, you know, it's interesting. And this carried on to my next job in, in, in food was that it actually is quite – cooking in a restaurant is quite similar to, to baseball and sport. Um, it, you have to show up every day it, and you're showing up every day yeah. and you, you have to really learn how to deal with failure in baseball. If you fail seven out of 10 times your whole career, you'll be in the hall of fame. Yeah. And in cooking, you can mess something up and you got 20 more orders in front of you. It's like you, you mess something up, you got to figure out how to regroup and keep going. There's infinite knowledge to learn. Um, and it's also, it's a team sport, but it's also an individual sport. So unlike soccer or basketball, where like you can mess up, but you're kind of lost in the flow in baseball, like you drop the ball, like everybody knows you dropped it, which is the same in the kitchen where you have to work as a team to be yeah. successful. But if you burn something and every, everybody else's dishes are coming up to the pass and your plate is, your, your dish isn't ready, you can mess everybody up and everybody knows it was you who did it. So there was a lot of that sort of performance side that I think really attracted me to the kitchen that I loved. You went on to work at Avec, uh, Donnie Medea and Paul Kahn's amazing restaurant in, in Chicago, and where it's sort of a long counter, open kitchen. And that's a restaurant that I feel is a model for a lot of New York City restaurants. You look at Momofuku and stuff, and there's just that blonde wood, benches, energy, and just buzzy. And so when you're at a restaurant like Avec, you know, how sustainable is that? Like, how long can you do that for before you're just exhausted? I just go in there to eat. I'm like, get exhausted watching those guys. <laughs> To do it night after night after night, year after year, um, that's got to be a grind, right? It's a grind, and I, I've watched it suck people under. Um, I mean, I think different people, you know, respond to it differently. Most chefs are, inter, you know, like adrenaline junkies and need that. They feed off that, mm -hmm. but at the same time, it really breaks them down. And um, the whole life, everything about the lifestyle is, is hard. So at what point during your tenure there did you start to think, you know what, I want to stay in food, but I want to investigate some other opportunities. Yeah, there was an experience when I was in the first restaurant I trained in Vienna um, where the chef basically, I was making a rhubarb sauce for this foie gras dish and 
the chef said, you know, they called me Yankee and they were like, <laughs> Yankee, okay, cook the rhubarb down and put a bunch of butter into it. I'm going to clean this story up yeah. <laughs> uh, for the family listeners. Um, and so I did that. I put a huge thing of butter and blended it. And then he said, no, no, no. I said, this is where I'm cleaning it up. I said a lot of butter. Yeah. And so I was like, okay. And so I put another huge spoon full, like yeah. huge, I'm not a yeah. spoon, like a giant thing of butter. And, and he came up to me and said, you know, if the guest drops dead of a heart attack when he walks out of here, it's not my problem. They asked me to make food that tastes good, yeah. not that's good for them. And he just then jumped, put a huge thing, thing of butter in. And it just really struck me. Yeah. And he's totally right that that's what, you know, customers have been wanting. Um, but it also, you take a look around, you realize, well, it's having a really serious impact on people's health. I mean, diet is the number one cause of preventable death and disease in America, right? So you realize like, okay, this is serious. And then you start looking at farming and farmers, where your food's coming from, how it's grown. And you start asking those sort of, sort of basic questions. And then it led me on a path of exploration, in which, you know, as I travel around the world, I spent time in Mexico or New Zealand or Southeast Asia sort of exploring these these ideas and learning about how different countries do different things. And that kind of sent me on my trajectory. And, you know, Avec had done a lot of, you know, had formed itself on their relationship with farmers. So it was an incredible place to work and learned so much there. I love that place. So then, all right, so then the obvious question, how did you segue into cooking for the Obamas, which that seems like a big leap for most line cooks. <laughs> yeah, it was a pretty big leap, I'll say. Uh, so how did that happen? I was I was overseas again. Um and came back, just sort of, you know, was tired of having a bag on my back. And what this is this? Two thousand six or so? Two thousand seven. Seven. Okay. And came back, um, and I was cooking for for I was cooking for a family, and got reconnected with the Obamas. I I'd known them from the neighborhood and had been, been but had been gone. <laughs> yeah, from around the way, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'd been gone for a long time, uh, so I hadn't seen them in many years. And started helping out the first lady. Um, you know, she didn't have, there was no help back then. It was like them and grandma. And this was pre-first lady. That was pre-first yes. lady. You know, but the kids were very young and the first lady was starting a campaign. So I started helping out a couple of times a week, making sure they were getting healthy, good food for the girls. And That, that was something that she had talked about, that she was worried that depending on, I think like a lot of us young parents, we we depend too much on, oh, we'll just put some frozen chicken tenders in the oven and I, I'm going to rush and the husband's got to be there and the wife's got to be there and the kids all mac and cheese and it's fine. Um, how receptive were the were Sasha and Malia to a, a different diet? And how much of your job was sort of convinced selling them? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. I mean, look, I think it's a trap that so many families fall into and it's totally understandable. And and when that happens, you know, from now on again, it's totally fine. I think that we run into trouble when that's, you know, how we eat day in and day yeah. out. And that's what ends up happening to so many, so many families. Um, you know, I think the key was with them and as it is for all kids, like including them, finding ways to include young people in that process, be it taking them to a farmer's market or even just to the grocery store, saying you can pick out three vegetables, you know, having or, or having the kids help you cook, mm -hmm. having some kind of ownership in that process I think really opens kids' minds and uh, to trying new things because they feel like, oh yeah, I did that or that was my decision, and that's something that I've seen throughout, you know, from the Obamas through on. That has been a really important do way you, to approach kids. Do you remember any in particular any small victories with the girls when you first started cooking? Yeah, so the first lady told this story, so I I, I feel like I can tell it. Uh, <laughs> we were trying to make sure we're eating less processed food, less mm -hmm. sugar, that kind of stuff, and. Um, and so, but Malia really wanted to keep the the powdered 
the powdered mac and cheese. Ah, uh, yes. We all grew up with and, it. The orange stuff. The orange stuff. <laughs> what and, is that? <laughs> well, that's the question I asked her. And she was like, no, it's 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 cheese. And I was like, uh, you know, it's not exactly the cheese that you and I know. And and so we made the deal that if, if she could take, I gave her a block of cheddar. And I was like, if you could make that powder out of this cheddar, then we'll keep the orange mac and cheese. Mm-hmm. Boy, that child tried so hard. She did everything she could. She put it on. <laughs> she put it in the oven. She put it out. She tried to grind it. She did everything she could think of to try to make a powder, and it just obviously wasn't happening. For the love of macaroni and cheese. Yeah. So from then on, we made our own mac and cheese. All right. So you're you're introducing a new diet to a family that families are used to doing. I think we all get in a routine. Mm-hmm. We have certain things we cook each week. We're used to things a certain way. Here comes this guy, former baseball player cook, who's telling us how to eat. Uh, mm-hmm. What about with the president? What what, what what was he resistant to, and what did what victories did you make on his front? Oh, I'd say actually, well, he's he's the most disciplined human being I've ever come across. He works out every single day, literally without literally without exception, and he eats a very you know balanced, healthy diet. I mean, he, you know, he loves a great cheeseburger and that kind of thing. Well, but who, well, who doesn't? Well, who doesn't? <laughs> yeah. So all of a sudden, fast forward. He gets elected president of the United States. And you're like, wow, I'm moving to Washington, D.C., I guess. Was that a given Was at that point in your relationship with him that you were coming along? Or was it like, hey, Sam, we should talk? Um, at that point, uh, the first lady and I had had, you know, lots of conversations about health and nutrition and the state of kids and, and the struggles that families were having trying to make sure their kids could uh, get the nourishment they need to be successful in school and grow up healthy. So there had been a lot of talk about, you know, the, uh, doing a garden, for example, mm-hmm. and maybe doing a broader campaign uh, around kids' health if we won. So th- there was, inc- you know, the sort of sense that something was possible, but nothing's real until the president, you know, invites you yeah. to come <laughs> to Washington with him. So that sort of happened abruptly one day as I was cooking dinner. And what, uh, what, what did he say? He had a lot of mo- lot more important things to do. I mean, if you remember uh-huh. the economy was in yes. a free for all, and he was trying to set up a government. So he's like, uh, "We think it'd be great if you came to Washington. You in?" I was like, "I'm in." <laughs> okay, good. And then, yeah. So then, talk about because it's a little confusing because you came as personal chef to the Obama family, the private family. But then you also sort of did you need to take on an official capacity within the staff and of the White House, et cetera? And could you explain that dichotomy? Yeah. So, um, so one unique, the one unique thing about my role was that I had the I was the chef I was a chef in the residence, so I did the the dinner five nights a week, and helped out with the bigger state dinners and such. But I had a a, a role in the executive office of the president, which is the political side. Mm-hmm. Um, and worked with the first lady and all this stuff. And, and that was essentially an appointed role. That's an appointed role. And that's never, there's nobody who's ever had both of those roles before, both in a residence and in the and the policy side. So that was utterly unique to the White House history. And the first thing we did on the policy side was plant the garden, which is really the basis. And that was really the, the first lady driving that. That yeah. was her passion. Yeah. Yeah. So you're cooking for the family still, and would you sit down with them or would you serve them? And was there that? Was it how relaxed or not relaxed was it? Um, when we got to the White House, it was more formal than mm-hmm. it was in Chicago. So yeah. and, and and you know, I, interestingly, you know, for them, I mean, he had been on the road for a long time. You know, he'd been campaigning. So, you know, the White House, um, he actually had time to stand for dinner every night. Yeah. Uh, he, or he made time. Yeah. And it was actually one of the great lessons for me is like the President of the United States, and he. Every single night had dinner with his family unless he was like in California where you couldn't make it back in time. Um, so that was that was real. That was family time. Yeah. And so, yeah, 
dinner time and workout time were the two things yeah. you would make sure you did every day? Every day, yeah. Talk about all of a sudden you're in the public eye. And and one thing we know about the White House, um, regardless of who's there, they come under a lot of criticism. <laughs> yes. At least half the country's angry yes. at any one point. What was that like for you to all of a sudden be the, uh, the target of criticism? It had its moments. I think um, you get through it because you're doing what you re- truly believe is right. Um, and you don't get everything right, right? Of course, you make some decisions that, that aren't, aren't as good as they could have been. But, but you know you're working in the right direction on behalf of the American people, American families. And for us, particularly kids, and really trying to support the health and well-being of children. And so... You know, I think for the there was there's that always pushback, and there's pushback if you're you know if you're not getting some pushback, you do, you're not doing anything. Yeah, and I mean I, that's Washington D.C. That's Washington D.C. Yeah. So I actually took took solace in the pushback. It made me feel like okay, that means we're getting some stuff done, exactly, or at least trying to. Yeah, at least trying to. You know, and and that and that we were being effective. What about on the federal government side in terms of affecting change through policy? And I think one thing that's interesting about you is that all right, you're a chef, you understand good food, but you also understand how D.C. works, and we've talked about this before when certain sort of food activists have written op-eds and stuff demanding that this and that and the Obamas aren't doing enough and blah, 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 blah. Uh, talk about what actually, how how much can the can you get done in Washington and the state of politics in D.C.? And like, what is doable and what isn't? You know, yeah. what's realistic for a president to, to push through? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and I'll try to answer as succinctly as I can because that could be a long answer. I mean, look, I think... I think Washington is tough right now, as we all know, um, but but a lot's possible. Um, I think um, I think you're only going to get so far as the culture will allow you to mm-hmm. go. So the culture is shifting on food quickly. Um, it hasn't really translated politically, though. So you don't see you see people in the grocery store really caring about what they buy, but you don't see them at you know school boards at city council, at the state senate office, asking them what their policy is, asking what are we doing about these food issues. They're worried about their own family, but they're not worried about policy as Yeah, a so whole. right now it's, it's a cultural transformation, mm-hmm. but it hasn't become a political one. And so I think until it becomes more political, until uh, we're demanding answers from our candidates about what their policies are on this, and people are casting votes on these issues, government in DC in particular, but even at the state and local level is, is going only going to go so far in changing, you know, big policies. I mean, I think we, we, the Obama administration did more on these issues than any administration in history. We made a lot of progress, but there are big barriers about what's even in play just because the culture isn't there. And look, it's a delicate balance. I don't want the government literally dictating everything mm-hmm. that I'm yeah. eating and nobody does. Yeah. And, you know, food is a deeply personal thing. And so it's a, it's a tightrope about, I think government's role here is to make it easy for families to live healthy and get healthy, good food at an affordable price. Um, that's totally appropriate. And finding the ways and the policies to do that and engaging people in that process is that's, I think that's the, that's the challenge that will either make a food movement or not. Yeah. Um, and that's sort of where we're, where we're at. And I mean, obviously, talking about sort of influencing the conversation and, and helping shape it. And your, your latest sort of career move is signing on with NBC as a senior food analyst. Um, and obviously, there's, there's no bigger reach than, than television. And, and so if you can talk about like 
in terms of what this means for you and what you think you can sort of accomplish in this new gig and, and what's the upside besides getting to be on TV? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and there's not much great. Not, not, fame is not great uh, in any way, shape or form, but I'd say I couldn't be more excited about this platform. I think, um, you know, NBC News, Today Show, Nightly News, all the various platforms uh, at NBC are um, have so much credibility and have been, you know, in this space reporting on on critical issues for uh, decades and decades. And food is one of these critical issues of our time. And I think it affords a chance to bring smart, uh, engaging stories to the country in a way that can shed a better light on sort of what we're facing, but do it in a way that's approachable and and down to earth. Well, yeah. So what do you think? I mean, are you going to try to mix actual cooking segments with reporting segments or what do you, what, what are you interested in doing? I'm interested in a really in a broad in a in a broader way of things. I think cooking will always be part of what I do. It's 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 part of the 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 integrity of actually speaking about food is practicing the the act of cooking. And there's that visceral visceral connection you can make with the viewer that like they hear something sizzling or you know yeah. what, you're like oh I want that. And I also want to translate some of the bigger ideas into practical strategies for people to put in their own lives. So it's great to talk about climate change, but if I can't give you a recipe that's maybe more sustainable or uses less water or then like, it's like, it's all talk. And I think that's where there's been a big gap is that there's the will and desire, but we haven't given people the strategies to implement those kind of changes. So I'll look at things around like food and health, food and hunger. I mean, hunger is a huge problem in this country. It's crazy. We waste 40% of the food we we produce, which is just mind boggling, both on a hunger perspective, but a sustainability perspective. Um, technology and innovation, there's so many companies doing just incredible things. I think our kitchens are gonna look fundamentally different in the next five to 10 years. Really? Oh like, yeah. Like why? Right now, our lives have been digitized and is moving many times faster than it was 30, 40 years ago. Our kitchens are basically unchanged for the last 60, 70 years, with the the exception of the microwave, which you could have an argument, you know, I like heating up my coffee that got cold, (laughs) but like past that, it's, you know, it's provided convenience, but not necessarily benefited us in other ways. So I think those kind of technologies brought to the kitchen, it's kind of actually weird that our kitchens have been passed up by these technological revolution that we've seen. Yeah, it is is interesting. It's like, we make it look nicer or cooler but i mean but you know that's kind of fascinating because at the end of the day it's like fire steel protein vegetable you know that good food hasn't changed yeah and i agree with that i don't think good food will ever change but it's kind of like writing it's it was once the quill and the ink and then it's the typewriter with the and now it's computer but like the art of writing is still the art of writing and i think food is going to be the same thing i mean i think simple good healthy food is still going to be at the core that's delicious um but we got to make it easier for people to do that otherwise it's you know people people love they want they want to do it they just are either scared of it don't have the don't have the the technique anymore which is why bone app is such a great uh tool for people because it provides Thank you very much you're welcome <laughs> uh because it provides simple good recipes for people to do i mean i think those are the kind of things that people need to re reinstitute cooking into their lives did you ever think about when you left the white house like oh man i need to open a restaurant <laughs> not for a second <laughs> <laughs> Well, Sam Cass, before we let you go, we're going to put you through our lightning round. Uh Uh-oh. So Let's do it. Either or questions, but you have to answer. I got to pick one. You have to pick one. I can't can't sidestep. I'm so good at sidestep. DC has taught me how to sidestep with the best of them. That's not an option here. You can't punt. Uh Uh-oh. Chicago Dog or Shake Shack? Oh, my God. Chicago Dog. You crazy? I don't know. I mean, that's easy. I hope they get harder than that. That's an easy (laughs) one. Bulls or Blackhawks? Bulls. I love them both, but I'm a Bulls fan. Yeah. 
Were you ever a hockey guy? I, I've grown to appreciate hockey, and you know, you chew for you know because well, the Blackhawks are really good now. Yeah, they're great now. So I love <laughs> hockey now. But uh, growing up, it was Mike. I'm a Michael Jordan. I come from a Mike. You know, the Michael Jordan yeah. era. So so you got to be. Uh, Air Force One or Marine One? Ooh, now that's a hard one. Marine One is the helicopter, by the way, yeah. for, for you folks. God, I have to choose home. one? Yeah, you got to choose one. If you go on one more flight with one of them with the president, which one's it going to be? I guess I'd say Air Force One. That's got to be the coolest thing yeah, ever, right? Yeah, it's pretty cool. It, I, it's I, like a flying hotel. It's pretty awesome. All right. Uh, bourbon or scotch? Scotch. Oh, I got to ask this question. Uh, in relation to a nickname I learned of yours, um, <laughs> Reese's Peanut Butter Cup or Snickers? Uh, I'd go Reese's. And why am I asking you this question? Uh, thanks, thanks, <laughs> thanks, Rappo. I'm. Uh, I, I was once upon a time called the Candy Man. <laughs> when, when, this was like when you were what age? What age was this? You know, in high school. <laughs> yeah, you liked the candy. I, I, I have been known to stuff giant bags of candy in my pockets and give them out to many people, including <laughs> eating a lot of it myself. <sighs> Harold Baines or Frank Thomas? Harold Baines, absolutely, no question about it. Over the big hurt. Oh, uh, Harold Baines was my hero growing up. He showed up every day. He didn't complain. Yeah, and he always came through in the clutch. Frank, he, Frank Thomas is a great hitter, but there was always drama with Frank Thomas. Yeah, yeah. And last question, and you got to pick one: butter or olive oil? Oh man. In any circumstance, you got you, you can only cook with that's one the totally rest of your unfair. life. No, that's it's not. totally unfair. That's, that's that's the lightning round, brother. Man, that is wrong. That is wrong. It's like, do you like your right arm or your left arm? It's like, <laughs> well, 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 if you're right handed, you know which one to I pick. guess. Um, I guess since I'm the health guy, I gotta say <laughs> olive oil. <laughs> All right, I love them both though. I'm not hating on butter. I want the I want the listeners to know I love butter too. Ladies and gentlemen, that's Sam, the health guy cast. Thanks for coming, Sam. <laughs> Such a pleasure. Thanks for having me. This podcast is brought to you by executive producer Bell Cushing and project manager Carrie Polis with editing by Mitra Kaboli. The theme music is by Valerie and the Greedies. Tune in every Wednesday for a new episode on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.